Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Hello, welcome to Tell Me Everything here on Sirius XM Progress. My name's Joe Sudbay, guest hosting for John Fugelsang. I swear, you guys, every night I have an idea of how we're going to start this show. And almost every night for the past week since I've been here, we've had some breaking news. And tonight, tonight we're going to start with some terrific, great news, a big win in Alaska. Mary Peltola has won the congressional seat, the at-large seat in Alaska. She defeated Sarah Palin. Yes. Wow. This was a race that was considered safe Republican. It was Mary Patola is now a United States representative. She has to run again in November. But this was a vacancy created by the death of longtime Congressman Don Young. He had served for almost 50 years. Mary Peltola was in the lead in the runoff on August 16th. She had about 39.7% of the vote. Sarah Palin was in third. Nick Bagich was, Sarah Palin was in second. Nick Bagich was in third. Palin, Bagich, both Republicans. Al Gross, who came in fourth, the top four in in the initial race, got to go into the runoff on August 16th. Al Gross dropped out and said, vote for Mary Peltola. She was ahead tonight at 8 p.m., just after 8 p.m. Eastern time. Alaska election officials ran the numbers on ranked choice voting. Nick Begich was out. Mary Peltola won 51.47 to (laughs) 58.53. It is a big win. Peltola is the first Native Alaskan to hold this seat, to win statewide like this. She's a Yupik member of the Yupik tribe. She is a former state representative, and it's just so exciting. I mean, winning as we all know, is way more fun. We have been on a roll. This is the second week in a row we have seen a major upset in a U.S. House race. And talk about an upset. This is Alaska. This is Alaska's been a very red state. Sure, they've had some Democratic senators over the years, but it has been a while. And this is just groundbreaking. And let me tell you, the Cook Report, which... Wasn't thinking this was going to be a competitive race. Tonight changed the ranking to turn it into a toss-up race for the fall. That's huge. This is another toss-up race. You guys, things are changing. Things are changing rapidly. We've been talking about it. We have been talking about it on this show and on this channel. We were ahead of the curve. We were ahead of the pundits. They were all... Just a couple weeks and months ago saying, no big deal, not a big deal. Biden's numbers are down. Inflation is bad. Gas prices are up. Republicans are going to have a wave. That's the way it's going to be. Well, that tune has changed dramatically. What happened? What happened on June 24th? The United States Supreme Court issued the Roe ruling, striking down Roe v. Wade after 50 years, letting Republicans take control of women's bodies. That has spurned an amazing um, response, higher voter turnout, younger people voting, women registering in unprecedented numbers. 
We've seen special elections. We saw the referendum in Kansas. We saw last week Pat Ryan winning New York 19, making abortion the top issue in that race and vowing to fight for freedoms, vowing to fight for freedoms for all Americans and fight against this extremism on the Republican side. Mary Peltola leaned in heavily on the abortion issue as well. This has changed the playing field so dramatically. And I got to tell you, Quinnipiac had a poll tonight, today, released its poll. And the headline, the headline was that Biden's popularity was surging. I mean, (laughs) okay, we'll take that. Biden approval rating surges after hitting low mark in July. I'll take the surge, even if it was from his low mark. Six weeks after President Joe Biden scored the lowest marks of his presidency, his job approval rating has jumped to a level not seen since September 2021. Americans give still hits a negative 4052 job approval rating, but it was at 3160. So he's picked up nine points since July and his disapproval has gone down eight points. I'll take that, too. Gas prices have gone down, too. So Republicans are losing those issues that they were going to run on. They were going to run on attacking Joe Biden. They were going to run on, uh, you know, inflation and gas prices. They've lost those issues. They were wishing for more inflation. They were wishing for higher gas prices. They don't care if you suffer if they win. We know that about Republicans. But now they are losing seats. They lost Alaska's seat. This has been a Republican seat forever. And they had one of the darlings, Donald Trump's darling, uh, Sarah Palin. He endorsed her. She was supposed to take this seat. It was there was practically a coronation. You'd seen it in the way the media treated it. So many political reporters and Republicans certainly treated it that way, like they were just going to do a coronation. But the Alaska voters said no, no to Sarah Palin, no to Republican extremism. Mary Peltola will be a member of Congress. And I sound very excited about this because I am so excited. I am genuinely excited. I'd followed this race. And it it was really interesting watching election Twitter. I mean, like, you guys, we think, some of us think we're geeks. I, 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 I am an amateur uh, compared to some of the tweeters on <laughs> election Twitter who dive into the numbers. And there was a lot of really smart people trying to analyze what it meant, what would happen. But we weren't going to know because we didn't know how many people in the baggage team who had voted for baggage even cast a a second choice and whether they would go for Palin, there was some bad blood between them. So big win tonight. Momentum. Democrats have momentum with less than 10 weeks till November 8th. This is where we'd rather be. We've got to keep it up. We've got to keep it up because so much is on the line. Democracy is on the line. That Quinnipiac poll I mentioned that found that was a nationwide poll that found Biden's approval rating had improved. 67% of Americans think the nation's democracy is in danger of collapse. 67%. It's 67 to 29. 29% don't think that. I imagine that 29% is some of the adherents and uh, hardcore followers of Donald Trump who really would just soon see our democracy fall apart. But that's a big change from their January poll when it was 58-37. And of course, what have we seen over these past few weeks? We have seen the former president of the United States, F. POTUS, as he's described in legal briefs by the Department of Justice, head top secret documents over 100, we learned last night from the filing in by the Department of Justice, over 100 additional classified documents. We saw the picture. Republicans have been in a frenzy over the picture and, you know, trying to figure out how they can debunk what we see with our eyes. Tonight, this is in the case of the special master, where a U.S. District Court judge, Eileen Cannon, who was appointed by Donald Trump, um, actually accepted his batshit crazy last idea last week, his inappropriately filed effort to appoint a special master. Last night, while we were on the air, the Department of Justice issued its response. 
Trump team had until today at 8 p.m. Eastern time to file its response, and they did. I took a quick look through it, and technically I'm a lawyer. I did go to law school. I passed the bar. This is something that looks like a first-year law student who wasn't paying attention would have written. There's inappropriate citations. There's an inaccurate assessment of the law. You know, and that's, that was my sense, right, when I was reading it. And I said, okay, Joe, you're not really a lawyer who practices, who writes briefs. So let's go to see what some of legal Twitter is saying. And uh, <laughs> they're having the same kind of reaction. Southpaw, NYC Southpaw, who is on Twitter, who's terrific. He's a writer. He's a lawyer. I know his real name, but I'll find it. But he wrote, the Trump team has filed the reply to the DOJ filing in the special master proceeding, once again displaying, IMO, in my opinion, his attorney's dim understanding of the issues at play. For those keeping score at home, Trump's reply does not contain the words or phrases declassify, declassified, not classified, formerly classified, or unclassified. And I do not see any other inventively worded argument that the seized materials were declassified, which is one of Trump's main arguments, right? Kyle Cheney, who writes at Politico, a legal writer, quite good. <laughs> he said the same thing. Important. Trump's lawyers do not say he declassified anything in his possession, despite Trump's repeated insistence that he declassified everything in his possessions. His attorneys have never said this in a, any court document. Now, one of the reasons his attorneys never said that is because it never happened. And you can lie on TV, as Donald Trump does. You can lie on Truth Social, as Trump does. You can't lie in court if you're a lawyer. He's getting some big trouble for that. Now, Trump doesn't care. He wants his people to lie. He doesn't care. He thinks you should lie for him. So we'll continue to unpack this. But, you know, the, the bottom line is, to me, sure, this is deranged and it is written poorly and it doesn't make any sense and it doesn't offer any arguments and it doesn't address the real issues. But the thing that's most disturbing is Trump picked the judge, Eileen Cannon, with every expectation that it doesn't matter what he says, or what the Department of Justice says, because she's one of, quote unquote, his judges. And he really expects her to deliver. And what worries me is that she will deliver, because that's what Trump judges do. They deliver for Trump. They'll deliver. They deliver for Republican attorneys general around the country all the time. They have all figured out, led by Ken Paxton, the very corrupt attorney general in Texas, who goes into court all the time to find Trump judges who will block Biden administration policies. That is something that's really happened to our judiciary. We have to be very aware of that. Uh, we'll be back here on Tell Me Everything after the break. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. At the start of the show, I mentioned this new Quinnipiac poll that showed Biden's approval rating 
had increased quite dramatically over the past few weeks, and that Americans are quite concerned about our democracy. They're also quite concerned about climate change. 69% think the lives of future generations will be harmed by climate change. They also found that 53 to 43% margin, there's approval for Biden's plan to cancel some federal student debt. It's particularly strong support for 18 to 34-year-olds. They're at 69.26. And even under 49, it's 58.39. So both of those issues, climate and student debt, are major issues for young voters. Really excited right now to be joined to talk about this by Maxim Thorne, who's the CEO of Civic Influencers. Welcome to the show, Maxim. Thank you so much for inviting me. I am honored to be here. Well, I'm really excited. The timing is perfect. We've had about a week for this student debt news to sink in. And well, let's start by um, telling everyone about your organization. Tell everyone about Civic Influencers. Civic Influencers focuses entirely on young people, 18 to 29 year olds. We are unique in organizing and mobilizing and educating young people about their civic responsibilities and the power they have to determine election outcomes. You know, millennials plus Gen Z are now the largest voting bloc in the United States, the largest voting bloc, if they voted. They actually almost doubled the size now of boomers. And so with that kind of power, they can actually prevail on all of the issues that they care about, like you said earlier, climate change, student debt relief, gun violence, economic inequality, a woman's right to choose and abortion rights, and so many others. And so we help them connect the issues they care about to voting. Well, and every single one of those issues you mentioned right now is just front and center uh, in the country. And what are you hearing from young young voters right now? Is the intensity and the excitement there? Are they understanding the power that they have? Well, let me tell you, I am the happiest I have been since I have been CEO of Civic Influencers. We were founded <laughs> in 2008. And the momentum we had then, in large part because of the Obama-Clinton competition for the Democratic um, nomination, that we had with from young people, we haven't had that same kind of excitement except for this moment. When you ask me, what are young people saying? I have never heard young people say so much uh, in so little time as in the last week that you mentioned. Uh, it has been an incredible upsurge of passion, of sharing of ideas and beliefs, and also of their concerns, whether it's concerns about COVID, concerned about having a job, concerned about um, having being a prisoner uh, to the government in controlling one's body. Um, and, and all these kinds of things are sort of energizing young people in a way. And we have the proof to show it. We have been one of the things that makes us unique and I think powerful in terms of our interventions that we use to help young people on college campuses, young people in the community, young people in trade schools. That means like massage schools, beauty schools, carpentry schools and so forth, and specifically also in community colleges, is that our interventions are data-driven. We were so fortunate to get a significant grant last year from Salesforce Philanthropy, which of course is, is the data company. And we created a data science department to study what is it that is affecting young people from voting? And what is it that young people care about that they would want to vote? And I will tell you, what we have found, and I'll give you one ex specific example, I could give you many. The moment the Supreme Court leak happened on May 2nd, we saw the most dramatic movement. The most dramatic movement in what young people were caring about. Abortion rights were in, in our surveys, and we have served over 4,000 young people. So this is 4,000, that's, that's quite a significant um, population when it comes to polling. It wasn't anyone's top five prior to, for young people, 18 to 29, prior to May 2nd. Right after that, it jumped 13 points for young men, 13 wow. points. And for young women, it jumped into the, into the top five and has remained there. 
And when we look at the top five, it is always a battle for what you just said, climate change, abortion rights, student debt, gun violence, and racial justice. And we we have it, in our survey, let's understand, 4,000, this is really significant. We covered a number of issues that young people said was their number one. That included things like healthcare, the economy, LGBTQ economy, um, mental health, immigration, foreign policy, future, so the uh, future financial security, COVID-19, judicial appointments, disability rights, social security, domestic terrorism, international terrorism, a host of things. Some young people placed every one of those, depending on who they are, as number one, as number one. The vast majority, as I said, the number one remained climate change, abortion rights, gun violence, student debt relief, and so forth. And, and what we've seen as things have happened is more people become more passionate and more likely to vote, more likely to, set, to, to uh, sign a voting pledge and to turn out. And the number of people expressing passion and concern has increased dramatically. My last point in our surveys of the 4,000 young people that we've been serving, only 1% of the survey said they didn't care passionately about anything. Do you understand that 99% of young people that we surveyed at least had one issue that they were seriously concerned about? Wow. That, and, you know, and by the way, you can see this research. You can see this on our website at civicinfluencers.org, uh, mobilizing the margins. Because what we, what we are telling young people and showing them is, if you are so concerned about gun violence, and you were so concerned about LGBTQ uh, rights, and you were so uh, concerned about student death relief, you have a lot to celebrate. You can actually celebrate because without young people being tireless in the advocacy to protect our climate and being tirelessly uh, against um, what's happened with America and this love of guns and acceptance apparently of young babies getting shot up in their schools, they have kept up that fight. And they deserve, I believe, almost all of the credit for what we have been able to achieve under this president with, with gun uh, uh, reform and as well, of course, climate change. And then now we have student debt relief. And we show them that when you are in your community and in your district, where margins in 2020 were as low as six votes in Iowa, 109 in New York for a district, and 333 votes, 333 votes in California, you could have taken the marching band you could have taken the glee club, you could have taken the sorority, you could take the football team, and you can swing an election of six votes, 109 votes and 333 votes with ease. And that's exciting and makes them feel powerful and make them feel that they've accomplished what they said and they weren't betrayed and the promises were kept. Wow. <laughs> okay. You've so got you me. I'm happy, I'm hyped up. I, I, well, I, I feel the same way. Uh, and you've got me even more hyped up, um, Maxim. So let's just, let's just unpack this a little bit. I mean, my God, it, it is, it, it's really great. And we, we, we think back about the 2020 election and young people did turn out in bigger numbers than they ever did. And that's why we have the White House. That's why we kept the United States House. That's why we got the Senate. And, and they delivered. And all of the issues you mentioned, it really has been these past few months that we've seen it come. And I know there was a lot of concern at the beginning of the year. There was a lot of concern as the summer was approaching that young people weren't inspired. They weren't, you know, that. And that was just kind of something we kept hearing. The pundits were saying it, it was showing up in some public opinion polling. Then we had, like you said, May 2nd and the actual release of the Dobbs decision, June mm -hmm. 24th. A couple weeks later, we had the bill that dealt with guns for the first time in decades, in decades. I mean, I was working in the 90s the last time on the issue, the last time we passed gun reforms. That was in the 90s. Then we had the Inflation Reduction Act, which seemed to come out of nowhere, that put the biggest investment ever in climate change. And then Joe Biden came through last week on student debt relief. How how did that kind of roll out with the with with the with your um, activists, with your, you know, the, the, what you were seeing um, did you just see a steady increase in it? And how did that play out? I'm just really interested in that. Well, I saw both. One is there is a myth that should have been, been debunked since 
2018, which is that young people are apathetic. Yep. The time yep. that it appeared, it appeared that young people were apathetic. It wasn't that they were apathetic, but they were facing and continue to face serious voter suppression. Young people yep. turned out in record numbers in 1971 for the Vietnam War. And they did not show up again until the Obama election. And they showed up again in record numbers in 2012. What happened in 2013 was the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, and we saw an onslaught of voter suppression, micro-targeting, laser-targeting young people. Florida tried to ban polling sites from college campuses. Wisconsin uh, enacted some of the worst uh, student ID laws that denied students the ability to use their student IDs uh, for voter IDs. Texas, you could use your gun license to vote. You can't use your student IDs. Uh, it's the, uh, uh, as uh, Ohio said, unless you had a utility bill, you couldn't vote. Now, tell me, when I was in college, I never got a utility bill from my college. I would live in the dorm. You know how many thousands of young people were disenfranchised? And instead of looking at the data, and that's why it's so important to have this data, people said, well, the young people didn't show up, as opposed to young people were being prevented from showing up. And what organizations like mine, and mine in particular, did is took on voter suppression that affected young people. And that's when we finally got the horrible uh, moment of 2016, which had the biggest impact of voter suppression resulting from the Supreme Court gutting of the Voting Rights Act that affected young people's turnout, particularly in Wisconsin. Now, remember, in Wisconsin in 2016, it's the first time in history that turnout for a presidential election was less than a midterm election. The reason it happened, voter suppression. And what we've had since 2018 is a real pushback from lots of really good Americans who believe in democracy and believe that everyone uh, has a right to vote. A pushback against the right that has been really trying to undermine our democracy, both on, um, in terms of race and in terms of age. And we've been successful by the time we go to 2020. And now I want to say to all the pundits who keep saying that young people are apathetic, Look at the actual fact, given the level of voter suppression, young people's turnout was spectacular in terms of the voter suppression that they faced. Now that we can remove more and more voter suppression, and we have, to everyone else's surprise, by the way, the fairest maps since redistricting that we've had in 50 years, I expect young people to show up in such record numbers. Now to your last point. The momentum absolutely has been building. Everything I said sets the landscape for what has just happened over the last few weeks. We have had two kinds of momentums, a drip by drip uh, revelations of the attack on our country and our democracy, potential espionage and all that kinds of horrible stuff. And we've also had the building of momentum of passion and excitement by young people, young people who finally can say they got a return on their vote. Now, it has been a painful experience as, for young people that they say, we've been fighting for climate change. We've been fighting for decades when you were young and I was young and everyone else was young for gun to, to end the kind of gun violence. We've been fighting uh, uh, for expansion of rights for LGBTQ uh, communities, marriage equality, and, and of course, a women's right to choose. And we haven't seen that great return. And now they can actually see they got movement on climate change. They got movement on student debt. They got movement on gun violence. And they also saw what happened with the Supreme Court, the elite court that is trying to destroy our freedoms. And so seeing the power that they got what they wanted and when they don't do it, what could happen? I think you've never had a more revved up community of young people ever in the last four decades. Oh, my goodness, Mac, I really needed to hear this tonight. And, uh, you know, I opened the show with the big news that um, Democrat Mary Patola had won the special election in Alaska. So we were already on a roll of feeling momentum. <laughs> and now this energy from you. Uh, and, and first of all, thank you for disabusing the conventional wisdom that so much that pundits get so much wrong and they will get it wrong and not acknowledge the barriers that exist that you laid out so clearly. So we got a few more weeks until the election, until early votes starting in some key states. 
Where are the states and communities where the young vote, youth vote, obviously around the country, it matters. But where um, particularly do you think the youth vote will be particularly vital in uh, 2022? I am so glad you asked me this, because I think everyone needs to know that to save our democracy, we have to be laser focused, right? I wish I had unlimited resources to focus on every part of America, 50 states and all the territories, but I don't. But I know that what what I just said to you earlier, a, a district was won by six votes. A district was won by 109 votes. A district was won by 333 votes. 12 of the 15 districts that flipped in 2020 were won by a fraction of a percentage. Let me, let me explain that, a fraction. That means less than 1% of the voting. So when the margins are so tight, young people have extraordinary power to, to shape their destiny and, and, and our future. And we have identified that civic influencers, please go to civicinfluencers.org. You will see our mobilizing the margins. We are showing young people, right? You have a voice everywhere, but you have a very strong voices, a very strong voice uh, in a place like California 33, in a place like Iowa 2, in a place like New York 22. We show them and we show them because people do not organize young people in general. And to the extent that anyone organizes, like even in our past, it was just four-year campuses. We have gone way beyond four-year campuses. We're doing community colleges, which tends to be a number, disproportionately low-income and youth of color. And we're doing trade schools with a similar demographic and do you know the micro-targeting to disenfranchise young people is even worse for young people of color and low-income young people? Let me give you an example. Louisiana, which used to allow no student IDs to be used as voter IDs, now, al- now allows four-year private colleges to use their IDs, but specifically excludes two-year colleges, meaning they have disenfranchised every community college student from being able to use their ID. And we see this repeated and repeated across the country. And who are they targeting so that they don't vote? Lower income young people and youth of color. So we focus on turning these people out. And when we turn out our people, young people, on community college campuses, on uh, trade school campuses, and for your colleges, at a six vote margin that they never voted in before, you know they can win. And so we have scored, we have scored each of these territories. Uh, we've we've put them together, tight margin, large student body and young people at a tight margin. And we say things like what I said to you earlier, your glee club, your singing group, your dance troupe, your football team, your gospel choir, your marching band, get them out, go and do it. And you can swing that margin. It is not. It is actually easy. It is not difficult. The last thing I, I, I will I will say I will say about this. People need to understand that in this American, amazing American plan. You cannot just focus on AOC or Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell or Lindsey Graham. You can't. You have to go all over America where there's opportunity. It's like Moneyball. You have to go where young people are all over America, in Texas, in Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and other places like Utah, we have identified districts. Again, small margins, we call it mobilizing the margins, where there are lots of young people, young people that we are mobilizing and we're using data-driven, data-for-action interventions, tying their issues that they care about to voting and showing them that they can celebrate what you said earlier. They can celebrate movement on climate change. They can celebrate movement on gun regulation, they can celebrate movement on student debt relief. And therefore, they, if they come out and they vote, that everyone listening, support us and support them. We pay, uh, we fund students and young people in communities on uh, community college campuses, trade schools and four-year colleges. And we make this non-cyclical because if there's one thing the right has shown us and those anti-democratic forces is that there's never an off year. Most organizations only ramp up September to November of an election year and disappear. We fund our young people to organize and educate year round. 
And this is continuous. And in this time of economic inequality, when we need to get young people who are low income and youth of color on community colleges and trade schools active, we need people to fund these young people to continue this march to November 8th. And we can ensure that we will have tremendous victories. I see no doomsday picture when I talk to young people. At all. This has been so great. I got to get to a break, though, before we're running close to the top of the hour. Civicinfluencers.org, the energy. We needed it tonight. Thank you, Maxim (laughs) Thorne, on Twitter at Maxim Thorne. Thank you, Maxim. Thank you so much for the work you're doing and for joining us tonight. It was terrific. Thank you so much. keep Keep in touch, and we'll talk again soon. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Hello, and welcome back to Tell Me Everything here on SiriusXM Progress. I'm Joe Sudbay, guest hosting for John again tonight. Have been so loving doing the show. It's been a week now, and uh, it's just been such a great experience. <laughs> Every night has just been news breaking while we're on and big stories like, you know, tonight, uh, which we opened with, Mary Peltola winning the special election in Alaska's House District, the only House District up in the 49th state, defeating Sarah Palin, a huge win, an unexpected win, another unexpected win for Democrats. Some scientific news today, let's call it scientific, the Food and Drug Administration, I guess we would call it health news too, authorized new coronavirus booster shots today that target the Omicron variants. The Center for Disease Control is going to review tomorrow, probably will approve. And if, in fact, that happens or when that happens, the rollout will start very soon. This is designed to offer improved protection for everybody against severe illness and death, especially as we roll into the fall and winter. The CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, said that There may be even boosters available this weekend with more showing up in pharmacies, doctor's office and clinics after Labor Day. So I think that's really important. I I am looking forward to getting my next booster. I know so many people over the past few weeks who have tested positive for COVID. I think this is interesting that this new development is happening as we're seeing companies like uh, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley join a list of corporations ditching COVID testing and mask requirements for their employees. And there's so many people who are acting like it's over. Stat News today had a really jarring, jarring article. Americans born in 2021 can expect to live for just 76.1 years, the lowest life expectancy has been since 1996, according to a new government analysis, which was published yesterday, published today. This is the biggest two-year decline, 2.7 years in total, in almost 100 years. The COVID pandemic is the primary cause of the decline. However, increases in the number of people dying from overdoses and accidents is also a significant factor. The other night we talked to Beth Macy, who wrote the book Raising Lazarus, about the opioid epidemic, which is killing so many people. And today is actually International Overdose Awareness Day. And if you had seen what Republicans were tweeting, they were lying with nasty tweets, blaming migrants coming over the border for bringing the drugs, which is not true. I mean, the, the, the cartels are so much more sophisticated than that. Kathleen Friedel, who we had on last night, actually wrote a book about it, and she wrote an op-ed in the, on the Hill, Mag- in the Hill newspaper explaining, like, anyone who says that is not taking this seriously. These cartels hire some of the brightest and savviest people, and they know exactly what they're doing, and they work very hard to get their product into their country. They don't risk it on the backs of people who are fleeing violence. So while Republicans were, you know, making a political heyday out of International Overdose Awareness Day, 
Douglas M. Hoff, who's the second gentleman and the White House director of the Office of Drug uh, Control and Policy, hosted a meeting with family members from across the country who've lost loved ones to drug overdose, including fentanyl poisoning, to share their stories and talk about policies the White House issued a list today of all the things that the Biden administration is doing. And in Beth Macy's book, she actually explains, she talks to experts who said the Trump years, they treated the opioid epidemic kind of like they did the COVID crisis, which gives you an idea of how little they applied science. He talked, Trump would talk about it. He talked a good game, but what they did was minimal. And he put, you know, Kellyanne Conway in charge, which she knows nothing about this issue, but they didn't care anything about this issue to them. It was just a PR game. So, yeah, that's that's the difference between Republicans and Democrats. Republicans have nothing to offer but divide and distract, pit people against each other, rail and <laughs> tax cuts for billionaires and cutting Social Security for the rest of us, taking our rights away. Meanwhile, Democrats are actually trying to solve problems. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm really excited to talk to Max Burns. We're going to dig into it. We're going to dig into politics with Max Burns in just a few minutes. This is indeed Tell Me Everything on Sirius XM Progress 127. My name's Joe Sudbay, guest hosting for John. And I love doing this show because I get to talk to some of John's regular guests, including Max Burns, who I always love listening to. And now I get to talk to him. Max, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? You know, I'm OK. I'm in a really good mood tonight. I mean, you know, another big win for Democrats up in Alaska, an unexpected win. I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah, the Alaska results will do that. I saw somewhere that this this essentially doubles the amount of land represented by Democrats in America. I'll take that. That's a good day. <laughs> That's a good day. And a seat that Democrats haven't held for almost 50 years. Um, and, and it really isn't. It is interesting. It was ranked choice voting. I'm from Maine. I, I live in D.C. I vote in D.C., but I'm a Mainer tr- through and through. Maine has ranked choice voting. And in 2018, that's how Jared Golden, who's become a total pain in the ass Democrat, but nonetheless, he ran as a progressive Democrat back in 2018. Uh, he won his first race through ranked choice voting. It really helps because in Maine, there's a lot of third party candidates and I think if we had had ranked choice voting in a few other places, we would have done better with some more progressives these past few cycles. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And it's it's not only in these primaries within the Democratic Party. I mean, we saw in New York, in lower Manhattan, uh, a 15 way Democratic primary that ended up electing a self-funding moderate uh, where 75 uh, percent of that electorate was progressives that just deadlocked. But this is also the most effective way that we have to push back against this fascism we're seeing on the right. When we give real representation to voters, time and again, they are rejecting these far-right candidates. And there are a lot of far-right candidates on the ballot. Um, I mentioned uh, before you came on, you, ha- you have a terrific op-ed in The Hill. Um, you published it last week. Democrats must go bold on abortion. And there's a picture right there of Pat Ryan, who went bold on abortion and won in New York 19. Um, I know this piece you wrote. Talk a little bit about it and then because I want to dig into it a little bit more. And I want to talk with you, Max, not just about what Democrats need to do, but what we're seeing Republicans do. But first, talk about your uh, your op-ed. Yeah, I think this is a really incredible time. Pat Ryan did something that goes against all of the received wisdom of politics, which is that you can't talk about abortion, that it's political suicide, that it will drive voters away from Democrats. Pat Ryan made his entire campaign about abortion, unapologetically fighting for a woman's right, and won in a huge upset. And we're seeing that the more voters hear about abortion, the more likely they are to vote for Democrats. 
And Republicans, of course, have a great reason to tell Democrats not to talk about abortion, because when abortion is the topic of an election, Republicans lose. Uh, But now we're finally seeing in the wake of Dobbs, you know, a shame that it came so late that Democrats are finally finding their voice on abortion. And we're getting a real clear message here that is mobilizing a new coalition of voters. It's so critically important. And, you know, um, there was a quote from Pat Ryan in The Washington Post, and it just struck me. He said, I've read it a couple of times on the air because I just believe it so much. Showing a fighting spirit is absolutely critical. A lot of people rallied around just strong, clear, unequivocal positions on issues that in the past, a lot of people would say you should be much more delicate or nuanced. And Max Burns, you know this to be true. There is a whole industry in Washington, D.C., primarily of Democratic consultants and pollsters and others who counseled candidates for years, be delicate, be nuanced. And they, my view, it's like they send their candidates through a high pressure car wash and the candidates come out on the other end speaking pablum. You have to do what Pat Ryan says, be strong, clear and unequivocal. Yeah, that's absolutely right. A lot of these consultants will gladly charge Democrats $7,000 a month to tell them how to appeal to Republican consultants. But that isn't moving any votes. And now we've seen in races repeatedly since Dobbs that Democrats have made this an issue and they found that that supermajority of Americans that supports the right to an abortion will come out to vote for you. But you cannot hide. You have to put yourself forward and say, I will fight for this issue. And if they don't see that, they will not come out to support you. I I couldn't agree more. And that was really the message of your your op-ed in the in the in the hill too. be clear about it S- lean into it and we've seen so many examples and we've seen so many examples where it ma- mattered electorally as you said but we're also seeing these horrific examples where the strict abortion bans are literally endangering the lives of women they are killing women talk a little bit about that because i think we can't lose that part of it either Yeah, I mean, this is not the time for nuance. There is certainly not nuance on the Republican side of this issue. I'm in Indiana right now, which is about 15 days away from enacting a complete ban on abortion. This is a state that tried to prosecute a doctor for helping a 10-year-old girl who was raped. These are positions that are so extreme that they, in fact, go beyond what about a third of Republican voters say they're comfortable with. And a lot of those voters never expected, for example, that within two months of abortion being overturned, that Louisiana, for example, would be potentially banning birth control and in vitro fertilization, that Missouri would be saying if a woman leaves a state to go get an abortion in a state where it's legal, they can still be brought to court in Missouri. I mean, these are radically authoritarian steps that the Republicans until very recently did not support. And now we're seeing that when they have the power, they will go as far as they can go. And the answer to that is not nuance. The answer is outrage and mobilization. And people like Pat Ryan and others have done that to a great degree and have really reaped the benefits. Absolutely right. And I think it's really interesting. One of the things I have thought a lot about was how leading up to the Dobbs decision there was kind of this, I, I don't I, I'm trying to think of the right word, this kind of, I still feel like there was a lot of eye rolling among kind of consultants, both on the Democratic and Republican side and kind of the political media and the political punditry. Um, when, you know, you talk about how this is going to be a major issue. And look, I, I, I was told, The night before the decision, I was on a conference call and I was talking about this issue and I was talking about literally how I was doing. I do state of the states, right? This show where I talk to state legislative Mm -hmm. candidates. I love doing it. Um, Actually, a lot of our episodes are going to play tomorrow on Mike's show Um, and Mike Signorelli's show. And every candidate I talked to said when they were door knocking, 
it was almost the first time, the first issue people would bring up. They, they, the candidate would say, what are, you, what are you thinking about right now? What are your concerns? And people would just spontaneously bring up. And this was before the decision. This was when we just had the leak. And I was told that, you know, Democrats aren't talking about it because there was a lot of polling circulating. That political D.C. world said voters didn't actually care about the issue. So that was what Democratic strategists were saying. They were saying it to the pundits and their, refor- their reporter friends and Republican pundits and strategists were hearing the same thing and they thought well democrats aren't going to make it an issue it's just going to be a wash and look what's happened it just to me max and you're not based in dc which is why you have such a better perspective but it really blew apart kind of that inside the beltway thinking they just got it wrong yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, leaving D.C. for me was great for my mental health and also great <laughs> for my perspective, because you come to the state level and you see this years long disconnect between the federal, uh, the federal government and the states where federal national level Democrats never really imagined that Roe could be overturned. I don't think it was viewed as a serious threat. But if you listen to abortion activists in the states and people organizing in the states, They were telling Democrats for years that this was an imminent threat, that these trigger laws existed, that voters were mobilized, and they just wanted a candidate to say, I will defend your reproductive freedom. And for so long, we spoke in euphemism about it if we spoke at all. And and so we've essentially had to build this national operation post-Dobbs that we should have had for years. And fortunately for us, Uh, These state activists have been incredible leaders and incredible voices on that and have really guided the party in how to talk about this in a very authentic and very real way. Absolutely right. Last night we um, spoke to Ann Warner from South Carolina and they had a vote in their legislature yesterday on another abortion ban. They'd already passed a six week ban, but that's been held up by the court. But yesterday they passed one that starts out at contraception. And she was telling us that the energy and the intensity in South Carolina was just off the charts. And she said it's really surprised everybody, um, particularly legislators. Now, it didn't stop them, but it certainly caught them off guard, the Republicans who pushed it through. Um, and and that, that brings me to another uh, item. And it was something that um, I talked about this last night, Max, and I just I, I have read this article a couple times. Um, we're seeing more Republicans back away from the issue or try to. Um, they told us for decades they were going to do this. They were going to ban abortion. And they got it. They got what they wanted. Now, there, there was actually this, these lines in the Washington Post article last night. Some Republican strategists cautioned against getting into debates over abortion with Democrats. Such strategies will only turn the midterms into contests favorable to the opposition, they said. And I read that and I was like, what, what do you mean? You, you made it an issue, Republicans. And to me, and you know, you've been in the political game, you understand this. When your opponents are desperately saying, don't talk about this issue, talk about that issue. Yeah. And, and, and this is really a disconnect, I think, within the Republican Party itself, because these Supreme Court justices who stole this right away, they don't need to worry about the political fallout. They have lifetime jobs. It's yep. the elected Republicans who are panicking now. And I track these closely. We've seen just in the last week or so, Blake Masters in Arizona, half a dozen other major candidates Uh, Even Ted Cruz scrubbing abortion issues from their website uh, and people who will talk about anything to anyone like Ted Cruz. Good luck getting them to even say the word abortion on television. They've been instructed that this is now toxic for them and that they need to focus on inflation, gas prices, student loans, uh, anything except abortion. So the number one thing uh, Democrats should be doing now is keeping Republicans feet to the fire here on abortion and making sure that they are answering for these incredibly unpopular positions. Absolutely right. And we saw just re- there was an article in the Detroit News about uh, state Senator Tom Baird, who's running in the 7th Congressional District in Michigan. And he is so intense 
completely anti-abortion. Um, one of his colleagues in the state Senate tweeted the picture of the pin on his lapel that he wears what would be considered little baby feet from a 10-week-old fetus or something like that. That's how insane, I would say insane, he is about abortion. And he has scrubbed the issue from his website, trying to pretend it's not a big deal for him. He's running against Elise Slotkin in a Michigan 7 toss-up race, and she's like, She's not playing that game. She's call, She called his shit out, and she's not letting him get away with it. But that 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 is such a tell. They don't want to talk about it. Democrats need to talk about it more and make them debate it and make them defend their positions. Yep. And this is a double-sided sword here because not only uh, do we now see Republicans on the defensive, but that has a cost within their base. When Republican diehard voters see these so-called pro-life candidates all of a sudden, scrubbing abortion from their websites, refusing to go on the record to talk about it, they start to think maybe these guys don't believe what they say. Maybe they're just using us. And now that they have gotten this, they're going to back away from it. And that's really lowering enthusiasm on the right. We've seen that reflected in polls just recently since Dobbs, that enthusiasm is spiking among Democrats. And yet a lot of Republican voters are just not very enthusiastic about this. And they feel to some extent like like they're being sold a bill of goods here. Yeah, that's exactly right. And what's also interesting to me is the um, number of articles I've seen over the past days and about, um, <laughs> you know, I always say if Nancy Pelosi sneezes, the, the entire D.C. political press corps turns it into somehow a Dems in disarray story like that is like their oldest standby. But it's almost like the D.C. political press corps is forbidden from saying GOP in disarray. But there really is a lot of disarray in the Republican Party right now. They're tripping over abortion, as we've said. They're really struggling with what to do with Donald Trump because, you know, they all jumped to his defense a couple weeks ago. And then now it turns out that he had extremely top secret classified documents that he was hoarding away down in at his hotel. Um, and and th th this is a good time. <laughs> if you're going to have GOP in disarray under 10 weeks from Election Day is a good time for it to happen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at Alaska. There is a there's a story that's being underreported here, which is that Alaska for many years uh, since the 70s had abortion codified in their constitution, the right to an abortion. And Republicans there said, not only are we going to try and repeal that, but we are going to impeach and remove any Supreme Court justice in Alaska who does not agree with us until we get a Supreme Court willing to repeal the right to abortion. And that is a view that a lot of voters took into the polling place when they just ended Sarah Palin's career. I mean, these, this is not a red and blue issue. There are a lot of Republicans, especially in the West, who are pro-choice. And when they see Republicans willing to break the rules and rewrite the laws so blatantly, they don't want to be a part of it. And that's a, a big undercurrent in Sarah Palin's race. Well, really important to point that out. And look, we saw it in Kansas, uh, just about a 60 to 40 win for that abortion ban. And that was the same thing. That was Republicans trying to take away rights that were found in the um, Constitution of the state of Kansas, which is exactly yep. what's happening in South Carolina. The reason the bill, the six week ban has been stopped is because there's a right to privacy in the South Carolina Constitution that Republican legislators are trying to get around. And I don't know if you saw this, Max, today, but, you know, there's an effort to put a referendum on the ballot in Michigan. It has it got uh, 700,000, over 700,000 signatures immediately. Um, there's polling that showed it supported by 67 percent of voters in the state. You know, there's a 1931 law that criminalizes abortion that would be effective if it hadn't been blocked by the courts. And today, the Michigan Election Board rejected putting it on the ballot. It, there are four members. The two Republicans blocked it. The Republican Party sent out a uh, statement. They're gleeful about it. It could go to the Supreme Court and get on the ballot, but it says so much. They do not want the people to decide it. Yeah, so much for the will of the people and the small government. I mean, you can't get much more local than state referendums. And this just shows you how transparent it is that this is not about the will of voters at any level. 
This is about the will of the Republican base, the Republican elected officials to write the laws in their favor and then write in election laws that will essentially secure them permanent majorities. Uh, This goes beyond just abortion, but I think it does turn off voters. This is something that has bitten Republicans already and certainly will continue to. The problem now is where do they go? I mean, they, they have no policies as a party. You're essentially pivoting from wanting to ban abortion to wanting to end free school lunches for poor kids. Neither of these are winning issues. But for for a lot of these Republicans, that's all they've got. It really is true that, you know, they are on the attack towards their constituents all the time, that the abortion is an attack on women. Look what they're doing to the queer communities around the country vicious attacks and to the point where now they've they've instigated you know there were bomb threats at children's hospital in boston last night it's unbelievable the level of vitriol they have thrown shown towards that community they certainly um have vilified and attacked communities of color the anti-immigrant rhetoric the um the voter suppression they they offer nothing for voters but they do offer a lot for their billionaires and they do, um, you know, look, I think Rick Scott gave the game away when he put in his plan. We're going to basically sunset Social Security and Medicare. And Max, this is something I, I, you know, I feel like when Democrats start bringing that up as an issue, it's going to be met with eye rolls and reporters and political people are going to say, oh, here Republic, here Democrats go again with their scare tactics on Social Security and Medicare. Okay, Rick Scott is the chair of the National Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee. He said it. Ron Johnson said it. It's not us saying it. It's Republicans saying it. And Democrats, just as they do an abortion, need to call this shit out and remind people every day. Absolutely. I mean, what I say to every Democratic lawmaker I talk to is look at what we're seeing. We're seeing a Republican Party that is has only used offensive attacks. They're excellent at those. But all Democrats had to do was not play by their playbook on abortion and put them on the defensive. And we've discovered they have nothing. They never prepared for the possibility that they would have to explain or defend these positions. They just expected to roll over Democrats. And it's Just a shame because I think how many other opportunities could we have had over the years had we just pushed back more aggressively against this playbook? Uh, It it, it maddens me. It's, you know, I've worked I worked on the gun issue forever uh, to, you know, gun violence prevention issue and how afraid so many Democrats were of the gun issue. And I used to try and explain to them the NRA You know, they're like, well, they're going to run independent expenditures. When the NRA ran independent expenditures back in the 90s, they didn't run them on guns. They might have run them on taxes or something like that because they knew they couldn't advertise that, you know, vote against a candidate who supports the assault weapon ban or vote against a candidate who supports background checks because overwhelming majorities of the voters in America support those positions. But it was this mindset that became so pervasive, this bullshit belief that Al Gore lost because the NRA, Al Gore lost because he kind of ran a shitty campaign and had Joe Lieberman as running mate. But it became dogma. And it's so it was so crazy because lean into these issues, fight for them. And that's another thing I hear from a lot of state legislative candidates. People want action on guns. But it's kind of a good example of where the Democratic consultants would say, stay away from that issue. It was like, lean in and fight. Yeah. And I'm glad more more Democrats are starting to read the room. I feel like for years, the biggest consumers of Republican consultant messaging were Democratic lawmakers trying to figure out what not to say. And, And I Suppose it just never occurred to a lot of these politicians to question whether that was actually true. And as we're finding in Kansas, in Alaska, in South Carolina, in fact, a lot more voters agree with Democrats than Democrats thought. And we're seeing more confidence now in the messaging. We're seeing Joe Biden get out into the country and start campaigning on these issues. Uh, I'm glad it happened now. It would have been great a year ago. But uh, as long as we are pushing this and as long as these are the issues of this midterm, Democrats are in a great position to hold the House. I, I agree. I, I, I've, I've been saying that for weeks. So before I let you go, 
we've seen, you know, last week we had uh, Ryan in New York. We saw Mary Paltola win tonight. What are the things you're keeping an eye on? What are some of the, you know, from from your astute eye, what should we watch out for over the next few weeks as we roll into the really heart of the uh, political season? Well, I think now you have a challenge of Democrats have posted a lot of really strong victories on really popular things like student loans. And you're going to see Republicans now pressed to defend their opposition. And if that goes anything like it's gone for Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania or J.D. Vance in Ohio or Blake Masters in Arizona, uh, they are just in collapse trying to figure out how to explain to their voters that they don't support anything their voters support. Uh, So I've been watching those races very closely. I think we're going to start to see a little bit of panic from Mitch McConnell about Republicans' chances to take the Senate. And that's going to mean that these candidates who are undisciplined Trumpers are going to start making mistakes. And Democrats need to be there to capitalize on those mistakes and not let a single one slip. Absolutely right, Max Burns. I need more Democrats to listen to you. They could start by reading your op-ed in The Hill from uh, last week, Democrats Must Go Bold on Abortion. But it's actually a message about going bold in general. Uh, The Max Burns on Twitter. Always, always great to talk to you, Max. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. And uh, keep in touch because you're right in the thick of it. And I know I know you'll have a, a lot of insights and a lot to offer over the next weeks and months. Thanks so much for having me. 